know, we could have an interaction together and you could say to me, hey, that really made a difference. And I'll feel good and it might even inspire you to show up differently in someone else's life, knowing that you can have an impact for them. The most beautiful moments are the ones you don't know about. The ones that transcend, you know, your knowledge and just move people in a really powerful way. Welcome everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. Just want to thank everybody who's been tuning in. Um, you know, I really appreciate it because our community is growing day in and day out, and it's thanks to all of you. So thank you once again. So today's guest is a man named Cody Schuwen. Cody Schuwen is a professional in the world of funeral home services. He had worked in this line of work for over 20 years and had a passion for this career, for this career from a very young age. Since becoming an entrepreneur, Cody has become a professional speaker where he travels the world speaking for audiences of all sizes and working closely with many corporations. Cody is also now an author as he has just released his very first book entitled Everyday Legacy. Welcome to the podcast, Cody. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So after you reading your book, uh, which I actually, yeah, I had the pleasure of reading your book and it was a great read. And after reading your book, I had learned that, uh, I had learned, I had learned a lot about you that I hadn't <laughs> known because we, we've known each other for a little bit now, but um, I got to know you on a much deeper level. But tell us where your passion for the funeral home industry had begun, because I know it began at a really young age. So originally my passion for funeral service began when I was in high school and I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in funeral service. And interestingly enough, the town's funeral director were family friends uh, of ours. And so we made the connection easily and I began my time there. Interestingly enough, the funeral director had the wisdom at the time to give me the guidance that I needed to understand the perspective from which families were coming into our care at the funeral home. And so he suggested that half of the time would be spent uh, in the funeral home and half of that time would be spent in palliative care and spending time with the families who were experiencing loss at the time. So it started, uh, you know, from a, from a logistical perspective right out of the gate when I decided I wanted to do it in high school. And, um, but the curiosity probably began much earlier when I was just a child. Interesting. Um, and yeah, you talked about the curiosity from when we were child. And when I read your book in your youth, uh, you said that you didn't have much interaction with other kids. You spent most of your time collecting obituaries about dead people. Um, did your parents, did your family, <laughs> did your family ever feel, did your family know about this? Like, did they ever find this a little weird? Yeah. So that, that's <laughs> the part that I'm, that I just referred to the curiosity and really the curiosity wasn't actually about death. It was, it was actually about human connection. Yeah. And so I grew up in a very rural part of, of the closest town was about 20 minutes away. Where did you grow up? A, a little town called Algonquin village. And, and where and, is that in Ontario? East, Eastern Ontario, south of Ottawa, okay. uh, just north of the Thousand Islands. Right. And, you know, it, it's a small little place. It's, I like to say it's a one-stop sign kind of place where, you know, no one ever stops at that stop sign, frankly. And it's a very, very small town. Um, 
I don't even know if it's a town, to be honest. I think it literally is a village. And so, you know, it, that, that community was certainly there. Everyone knew a lot about each other. And yet our closest home, the, ne- the next closest house was quite a distance away. And so there weren't a lot of friends, you know, friends for me were at school, but once you were home, you were so far from people. In fact, even back then at the time, you know, it was a long distance call to call the next town. So we didn't spend even a lot of time on the phone with friends. We saw them at school and not much other than that. And so I didn't have a lot of friend uh, connections growing up. Um, The ones I did have were good, but they were always somewhat at, at arm's length. Right. And so... I, I started this thing where I was, I, you know, I would look through the paper and I would read the obituaries. Now, <clears throat> I want to be clear because I'm, I'm clear in the book about this. This is not death notices. So this is not, you know, so-and-so died and this is their visitation and this is their funeral. These are obituaries. Now, in a lot of big places like, you know, Toronto or LA or New York, obituaries are run for people who are, you know, of note or people who are famous. That's that's who is, is as obituaries run for them to today's day and age. But in this small town that I grew up in, everybody got an obituary. It was usually about two weeks, you know, to a month after they died. And it would be a story that basically was two or three columns that sort of enveloped a lifetime. And it would talk about, you know, who they were, the qualities they admired uh, in their life, the hobbies they had, the philanthropic efforts, the, you know, all the, all the things they were ambitious about. And so they really were these, these beautiful stories about these individuals. And one of the things that I realized was in my very creative brain and my storytelling brain, even as a child, these people came back to life for me. And so if I found them interesting enough, I would actually cut them out. I would cut out their obituary and I had a sticker book that as a kid I dragged around and I would essentially fold these uh, obituaries up and I would put them into my sticker book. And it became this cast of characters that at any, at any time I could open up and flip through. Now, it sounds kind of morbid. So to answer your question about what did my parents feel about it, uh, you know, oddly enough, my, you know, I would think if, if I flash forward to me as a parent, I, I might be concerned. <laughs> There's no question. I would definitely yeah, be. <laughs> I think I would probably be concerned. <laughs> right. But my mother just knew that I was a, a unique kid yeah. who, who really valued, I was I, always told I was an old soul. Mm. And so she clearly knew there was something to it. She knew there was a, you know, something to the to it happening. And yeah. I never got in trouble for it. She never took it away. And she never changed the behavior. Um, mm. She knew, I think, eventually it would evolve. And it did. Eventually, I stopped cutting them out. And eventually, the sticker book went in a drawer. And, um, and it wasn't a priority in my life. But for a long time, that sticker book was a prized possession. And, and these people basically came to me in, an, in a time in my life when I didn't have a lot of connection and a lot of community these characters arrived every day in the mailbox. Right. Interesting. Um, no, that, that seems like a very um, easygoing mother because my mom would definitely freak <laughs> out. Um, and I, I mean, and, and thanks for clarifying because when I had first kind of was thinking, I'm like, man, it's just a guy who probably watched Sixth Sense too much or like... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oddly enough, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because most funeral directors that you would ever meet... Um, you know, don't ne- don't make time to go home and watch Six Feet Under. I think it's the same as lawyers don't go home and watch Law and Order, and ER right. doctors don't go home and watch Grey's Anatomy. You know, we sit with a cynical eye, you know, uh, against the Hollywood version of what it is we do. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so no, it definitely didn't spend space in the doom and gloom at all. <laughs> um, well, one thing that you brought up in is stories. One thing that you and I have in common, Cody, is is the fascination for people's stories. 
And um, I had read that you, I think we both kind of live by the same rule. If it intrigues me, I'll pay attention to it. Um, cause sometimes people ask me like, what, what kind of criteria are you looking for on your podcast? What do you want to talk to? And I just, I don't really know how to, what to tell them. I just said, if it intrigues me, I'll reach out to you. Um, yeah, I love that. And, um, after hearing tons of life stories through your work and through your passions, did it ever become hard for stories to stand out or inspire you, you know, dealing with, you know, reading obituaries for all this time, working in this industry for 20 plus years? Did you ever just become numb to it and be like, as just, just another person or like, how did, how did stories stand out for you at that point? I think everybody has, has a story inside of them. Some are longer than others. Some are maybe less inspiring than others or less intriguing, but everybody has a story to some degree, whether it's a story through their experiences, whether it's an, a story through the people in their lives and how they show up in those lives. Every single person has a story. There's always something interesting about everyone I ever dealt with in that world. Now, you know, the truth is I haven't been on the front line of that world for quite some time, but I still work with clients in a consultative position and I work with their frontline people every single day. And so I still hear these incredible stories about all these people who have, who have gone, who have died. And it's interesting because one of the very first stories that I tell in the book is the aha moment that I realized everything we've ever been taught about legacy is wrong. And that is that I was listening to this incredible set of eulogies about a man who I didn't know. Uh, but clearly his you know, family were passionate about the man that he was in their life. And they were telling these just beautiful stories about, about him and about what he meant to them. And of course, as a funeral director, I was standing at the back of the chapel, listening, waiting for my next cue to move forward with the next part of the service. And there were tears from laughter. There were tears from belly laugh. It was just, it was just the most inspiring eulogy. And, and meanwhile, I had heard thousands of eulogies before, but there was just something about this one that struck me. And I had this moment of reflection that I thought, my goodness, I hope the people in this room have told the man that's at the front of the room, the guest of honor, if you will, what he meant to them before right now. Because if they didn't, what a shame. Here, this man had left this indelible mark, this, this real fabric um, that weaved a, a blanket that was just shrouding these people and their lives in such a beautiful way. Really, it gave them something to hold on to forever. And it was when I realized that everything I had even ever thought or been taught about legacy or either consciously or subconsciously was just totally backwards. You know, so much that we think about legacy when we do think about it is that it's something we leave. Um, and I understood immediately the power of living that legacy every single day, hence the name of the book, and really to embrace the philosophy of our purpose more than anything and how to show up with purpose on purpose every single day. So what is everyday legacy? I think that sort of, that encapsulates it. I think it's, it's shifting the narrative around legacy, taking it from something we leave to something we live every single day to using that powerfully in our lives and understanding the gift that we are to other people and sharing with others the gift that they are in our lives. And essentially the, the, the easiest way that I can sort of define this in a nutshell is the one question that will clarify your purpose immediately is how do you want to be remembered? 
And when you flash forward very quickly to the end, take for a brief moment that your human experience is over and you ask yourself that question, it makes a poignant, uh, it's a poignant moment to realize exactly what's important, what character values you want to have every single day. And we don't have to think about this in a doom and gloom kind of way. We just have to realize the power that we have to change people's lives around us just by how we show up in the world. From simple interactions to longstanding relationships, we can make a difference and we can actually change the world one person at a time, one instance at a time, one interaction at a time, and really start to powerfully shift our the narrative around legacy from something we are leaving, which is inevitable, to more powerfully something we live every day. Mm. I really like that. It's a good definition. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on this. What if people are living their everyday legacy, but they just don't know how to put it into words? Um, I recently read in uh, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, that we know deep down inside what it is that we want to do, but it's just so hard for us to express ourselves. You know, we desperately try to find the words, but they don't always come. So what do you have to say about that? Wow. I mean, that's, I mean, it's, that's a loaded question for sure, because I think so many people are searching for purpose. I think so many people want to show up in a way that's meaningful, not only to themselves first and foremost. And I don't think, I don't say that in a selfish way. I say that in a very self-full way, which is a philosophy that I later talk about in the book. And maybe we'll cross that bridge a little bit later, but you know, that, that ability to be self-full and to show up powerfully in the lives of others is something that helps us to realize that we can impact people with our behavior, with our interactions and our actions. And so to answer your question, I think truthfully, a lot of people are subconsciously living their everyday legacy, but subconsciously is, you know, is, isn't as powerful as consciously. And so when we're able to adopt the framework of everyday legacy as those values and characteristics on repeat every single day in a purposeful and powerful way, we start to really understand uh, consciously on a conscious level every single day how our interactions are changing those around us. And so it becomes something that we can, um, you know, we can actually focus on in every moment if we choose to. And it doesn't have to be a lot of work. It just has to be something that we think about. And, you know, just it's, it's kind of like going to the gym. You know, you don't go to the gym on the first day, and at least most of us don't, immediately lift the 100-pound weights. That that's not typically how it works. We go and we lift the five pound weights and then the 10 and then the 20 and then the 35 and we work our way up. And so it's the same way when we, when we think about shifting to having this mindset around everyday legacy, you know, we just have to start. It's mm -hmm. just one day at a time and it's just having conscious awareness and then putting those values on repeat. Uh, actually, cause I was just about to ask you that question. You know, when you say everyday legacy, do you feel like we might be putting us any sort of pressure on ourselves? Like, if we feel like today we didn't, we didn't live our everyday legacy, maybe today we just, for some reason, just didn't show up. <laughs> Do you think that we're putting pressure on ourselves saying like, oh man, I, I'm not living my, my legacy. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. I think that's probably a matter of perspective. I think, you know, a, a lot of people live with imposter syndrome. A lot of people live in this world where they think they're not enough. Um, you know, and, and, and a lot of people live in this class menagerie that everything is rainbows and unicorns. And one of the things I was really clear about in the book is that that's not what life is like. You know, life is often challenging 
there are a lot of roadblocks in front of us that we don't want or that we didn't expect that we have to manage. And sometimes those roadblocks seem to be showing up persistently every single day and we can't seem to navigate around them. But the truth is that the, you know, the, the, the more that we are, the, the harder we are on ourselves, the harder things sometimes get because we create this construct around I agree uh, a lot of that, a lot of the things that are in front of us and our perspective starts to shift. I, I talk about this in the book when, when we are so close to something, we have no idea sometimes what it is. So, you know, picture our noses against a wall. We haven't got a clue if that wall is, is what color it is. We don't know if it's brown or black or red. The further we get back from it, we can start to see the color. The further we step back, we can realize what it's constructed of. So if it's bricks, you know, we can figure that out. The further back we get, we can see the number of bricks. And, you know, eventually when we get back far enough, we can see how wide and tall it is and eventually over it and beyond it. But that's just a matter of perspective. And so, right. you know, for people to be hard on themselves because they don't think they're living their everyday you know, everyday legacy, it would be like saying that I do it perfectly every day too. And I don't, you know, there are days that at the end of the day, when I'm reflecting, I think, ah, I could have handled that differently, or I could have said something differently, or I had an opportunity to impact someone and I didn't because I chose not to. So it's just a matter, I think of perspective and it's a matter of having the open and vulnerable conversation with yourself to not be too hard on yourself. And to just understand that purpose is, um, you know, purpose is something that is, if you're striving to, to have in your life, it doesn't need to show up in grand ways. It can show up in the, the teeniest, tiniest moments in your life. Do you feel like age plays a factor in legacy? Um, those who obviously have lived longer have had more experiences. Do you think they can have a better grip on their legacy than younger folks? You know, I, I, yeah, to some degree, I think that, you know, the older we get, the more conscious we are of our legacy. But the truth is that, you know, we live in North America, at least in a primarily death averse society. No one wants to talk about death. And oftentimes there's an association with legacy to once you're gone. In fact, the, the subtitle of the book originally was Everyday Legacy, a book about living your legacy, not just leaving one. And powerful, uh, you know, most people said, yeah, I, I agree that's powerful because it, it tells you exactly what the book is about. The problem is, will it move off the shelf if people are worried they're about to book up, pick up something off the shelf that's going to cause them to maybe have to explore an area of their life they'd rather not explore. Right. And, and when I really looked at it more, uh, more objectively and I stood back, I realized the book is, you know, while it's about legacy, it's, it's, it's mostly about purpose. It's about how we're showing up in a meaningful way and understanding that ultimately that writes the script to the legacy we'll leave. But in a position of power and control and understanding, we can control and manage that right now in the present. And I think that is ageless. I think you can have someone as young as, you know, a, a, a child, making a difference and understanding how that affects other people from, you know, raising money for different charities, you know, selling lemonade on the side of the road. They understand that the, the act that they are doing impacts someone else in a positive way. And, and there are ingrained values and characteristics that are in the process of doing that, that I think are, are a natural, a nat naturally conducive to other areas in their life, whether they realize that because of their age or, you know, then or later, um, you know, I think, to your point, there's something that comes with age where we start to recognize these things more, but I think it's always there. It's just whether we're conscious of it or not. Absolutely. Um, and, and I can definitely, I can definitely attest to that. Um, I think that just with age, things become more clear or you're just able to articulate yourself better. You've gone through more things. So you've kind of tested, you've tested time many times. So 
if that makes any sense. So yeah, I I I, I agree to that. Um, but you, you know, you you do talk a lot about helping others in a positive way, having a positive impact on others. But how do you really know when you've helped someone? I mean, we live in an era where motivational quotes and inspirational speeches are at an all-time high. Um, <laughs> anyone can feel moved by the content that they come across and then they do absolutely nothing with it. Um, how do you truly know? How do you truly know when you've helped someone? I think the, the, the beauty to the answer of that question is that when you don't know. So it's one thing to know when you've impacted someone, because oftentimes people will tell you, you know, we could have an interaction together and you could say to me, Hey, that really made a difference and I'll feel good. And it might even inspire you to show up differently in someone else's life, knowing that you can have an impact for them. The most beautiful moments are the ones you don't know about the ones that transcend, you know, your knowledge and just move people in a really powerful way. Now I've had some of these examples that have actually come to me, um, but there are many more that are happening through this book being in the world that I don't even know about. You know, it's one thing to get messages from your mom <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, from your, yeah. you know, your siblings or your, you know, your grandmother saying, oh, I love the book. You know, you, you half expect them to, to love it yeah. or to tell you they do even if they don't. Um, but what's beautiful is when people you don't know are sending messages yes. saying this book made a difference in my life. That stuff's powerful. I, yeah. I, I got a message from a from a girl today and she's in stage three, stage three breast cancer. And, um, the photo was of her in her hospital bed in chemo treatment, sending, sending me a message saying she was halfway through. That stuff is, I mean, that's powerful. It gives me chills. It makes me emotional just thinking about it. There are, there are things in the book that moved her in ways I didn't expect would. We ended up talking for about an hour. Yeah. And those are the things that will change her perspectives and those perspectives will shift how she shows up and that will change how she impacts other people's lives. So these moments of impact, you know, can be felt in ways we can't even imagine. I think those are the beautiful ones. That's incredible. And that's what's incredible about having, being able to turn your, your, your work into a tangible good with this book because everyone's going to be reading the same thing and how they choose to show up after that is entirely up to them. And when you find out that you've affected somebody from a different part of the world, that's, I'm sure it can mean a lot. Yeah. It's, it's funny because when I wrote the book, first of all, writing it was incredibly cathartic. Like <laughs> it felt like a giant therapy session over the course of a year. And when I wrote it, you know, in the foreword of the book, I actually say that I met a woman at a retreat and we had not previously met. And at the time we were sharing, you know, what we were working on in our businesses. And so I shared about everyday legacy. You know, I wanted to use the brain trust of this group to understand if they had published what they had done, what had worked for them, what, what didn't work, you know, get their advice, really tap into their experience and expertise. And so I shared as well the philosophy of the book and she was very intrigued and we went on to have a couple of discussions over the course of the weekend and in no time the retreat was over and I was back on a plane and flying back here to Toronto. And about six months later, we were at a gala together and she's a fellow speaker and so we happened to just be seated beside one another. And towards the end of the gala, she, she leaned towards me and she said, can we talk? 
And I said, of course. And so I shifted my chair closer to hers and she leaned in and she put her hand on mine and she said, I just want to share with you that learning, just learning about everyday legacy and its philosophies has changed the way I live my life. Wow. And I remember at the moment being a bit gobsmacked because I, I didn't, <laughs> I was not expecting her to say that. Of course. You'd be like, what is happening right, right now? Yeah, it was a, what is happening right now? And I remember being a bit overwhelmed with emotion thinking, wow, like the, you haven't even read the book. You've only heard about the philosophies and already it has shifted things for you. And she, she went on to say that, that it changed her, the relationship she had, that she was being more patient and she was trying to understand and have perspective more with certain individuals in her life. And she was loving harder than she had loved before. And she went on just this beautiful sentiment. And, and I thought, I'm, that's amazing. My work here is done. Like the, it, she later went on to say, when is it being published? And I actually said to her, it doesn't need to be now because my goal when I set out to publish the book was to affect one person, just one. And I actually realized through writing it was me, that it was helping me to better understand the relationships even in my life and the, the, the gift of the profession that I had. You know, a career surrounded by death taught me everything about life. And so, you know, most people who perhaps started listening to this podcast, hopefully it has transformed their idea about funeral service because the truth is that that career taught me some of the most beautiful and most powerful lessons that I have ever been gifted in my entire life. Um, and so with this woman in particular, Evelyn, she really um, gave me some perspective in that moment that you know maybe the message was what the world needed to hear. And for me, it doesn't matter if that world is one person or two or 10 or 20 or 2 million or 20 million. As long as one person has moved, it's all that really matters. And I'm sure since that encounter, you've met many people like Evelyn, many people who are doing some great things. But Cody, when you see somebody who you feel has a tremendous amount of potential, but they're not living their everyday legacy, does that hurt you? It doesn't hurt me. It inspires me. Inspires you. Okay. Yeah. yeah I think that, uh, I think that perhaps that person is just someone who maybe hasn't had someone in their corner. Maybe they're someone who hasn't had someone rooting for them or a cheerleader in their life. You know, if, if you look at my childhood, you know, I was a kid who was, you know, on, I can't tell you the number of report cards that came home that said, I talk too much. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you know, I, the same um, thing. I can't tell you the number of report cards that came home that said, Cody's so distracted in class, he needs to pay <laughs> more attention, thing. right? Same thing. And so inevitably as parents, you know, those are not, those are not positive comments on a kid's report card. And so every year I would get these report cards and every year I'd get in trouble and they would say, Cody, stop goofing off in class, start paying more attention, stop talking, start listening. Well, fast forward now in my professional career, I get paid to speak for a living. I get paid to be the only voice in the room sometimes for 90 minutes or longer. So you could tell those teachers that all those years are just practice. Yeah, just great practice. <laughs> and for me being distracted, you know, that to me is the sign of a busy mind and someone yep. who's innovative and creative and, and that, that, you know, some would call it shiny object syndrome, you know, constantly distracted. And I just think that's a gift that I've been given to be able to see things with perspective differently maybe than other people do. Right. And so for the person who maybe I don't think is, you know, fully enveloped in their everyday legacy, I just think maybe they haven't been, they haven't had the right messaging around their gifts and around how they could show up or how they could impact people. Or maybe they are already and they're just not told. And so consequently they 
they deem that the gifts that they have in the world are not of value. Wow. That definitely is. That definitely is a, a great perspective. Yeah. I mean, th- think about it. If, if you're told something that you think is positive for, you know, by a, a, a ton of people over a long period of time has no value, don't you yourself start to believe that? You know what? I spent a lot of time on learning that. I spent a lot of time just really assessing why somebody would be telling me these things and how do I feel about myself? And that's what it came down to is that for me, it was once I felt something about myself and I had a vision, then I had to make those 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 movements every single day until people could see what I was doing, especially even with this podcast, with public speaking. When I first said it, people were just like, oh, what is that? But now it's like, what's really cool is that since putting out my podcast, I started and I just putting out interviews, people that I haven't spoken to in years have reached out to me and said, hey, great podcast. Can I be a guest? Which is really, really interesting. And that what kind of made me realize that whatever I'm doing here is I'm supposed to be doing it. So I don't know. Maybe I can't put words into it right now in this moment, but something's working and it feels right. How do you feel doing it? Great. Phenomenal. If you, if you could rate it on a scale of electricity, zero being not a buzz and a hundred being like enough to electrify you to move where's the scale? 110. 110. Okay. So not even mathematically possible. And look how, I mean, so this is a podcast. No one can see you right now, but if the smile got any bigger on your face, it would probably crack. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, how beautiful is that? So similar to me writing the book, you know, honestly, can I swear on this podcast? I mean, if you want to, who gives a shit what other people think? Yeah. You know, we are so programmed by other people's uh, perceptions by other people's framework. And we are, we grow up with that because inevitably our parents have a certain construct that they want us to operate in. And when we start to bust through that, we start to get, you know, our wings clipped inevitably. Most, most people do. Now, some, some of us have great parents, um, but even my parents, as great as they are, when I started to step, you know, for instance, when I decided I was going to leave a very comfortable corporate career six years ago, even then there was trepidation. You know, my parents are saying, oh, you know, you're like, you've been there for 14 years with one company. You've got tenure. You're in senior management. You know, ugh, are you sure you want to do this? And yeah. I was like, without question, this is what I meant to do. And look at all the beautiful places it's led. I've met a community of people now who I just absolutely love. I wrote a book. I mean, I wrote a book. It's something I've dreamt about since I was a kid. And here this book is not only just written, but it's actually changing how people are showing up in the world. There's not a better gift. So you don't stop what you're doing. I don't care if you have one listener. If you're impacting one person, yeah, it's purpose. Thank you. Thank No, thank you for that. Um, relationships are important to you. In this book, you, um, you talked about your relationship with your father, how you didn't have one. Um, but after he had passed you'd gotten to know him a lot better. Mm. Talk about that. Yeah, we're going to go there, huh? All right. Yeah, I mean, my my relationship with my father was um, strained and estranged, um, all in the same breath. He was a man who lived in the very same city uh, as I did, the closest city, which was about 15 minutes away. My mother and he divorced when I was about three years old. 
And he continued to have a, a presence in my life, but merely like Christmas and, you know, birthdays. That was about the extent of it. And so around 13 years old, I think it probably was, I, you know, was at his house for Christmas and he rented an apartment and he smoked cigarettes and he drank beer and he loved to throw darts. He was an incredible dart player, actually, um, and taught me how to throw darts. But it's just none of those things were things a 13-year-old is interested in. And so I would often crash on his bed or on his couch and I would fall asleep. And I remember poignantly a discussion between my mother and he when he picked me up, when she picked me up once from his house. And he said, you know, all he does is come here and sleep. I don't understand you know, he's, he's a lazy teenager. And my mother said, he's not lazy at all. That's not the son I get at home. You know, you have to meet him where he is. What are you doing to engage him? What are you doing to be interested in his life? You know, do you expect him to just come here twice a year and morph into your world? That's not how it works. And, you know, the, the argument, if you will, the debate ensued and eventually I, you know, was awake and left with my mother. And that was one of the last times I saw him. Um, I had decided at that young age that it just wasn't a relationship that was serving me. And so fast forward, you know, we basically became like living ghosts to one another, living basically in the same, in the same towns. And so this relationship went from strained to estranged to strained again, because I started having this deep resentment for the father that he should have been and could have been and all these different, um, all these different things. And essentially my grandmother, who I was incredibly close to, um, you know, she tried to play grandma and dad. So she would, you know, forge his signature on Christmas gifts and, and he was just absent in so many ways. And so the resentment built and eventually I went off to college and finished mortuary school and got into the working world. And I had essentially written him off. You know, I had a real deep seated belief that, you know, funerals were meant to celebrate someone's life, the values that they offered to the world and to the people and that, 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 that they loved. And that ceremony was had to celebrate all of that. And I didn't know him. So I didn't connect the value of a funeral to his life. And so when I was 26 years old, you know, I got this call and it was my mother saying he had died, that they, he had been found dead in his apartment. And all of this, all of these ideas that I had had around the reactions, I thought I would just sort of politely open a drawer, pull them out and put them into play, which was to really not care and to just disregard you know, the loss and to just move on. And that's not at all what happened. You know, what happened was I had this mental breakdown because I think I realized in that moment, the finality of it all, that if there were things that could have been corrected or righted, that now it was over. And so fast forward a couple of days and the planning for for what may be a funeral had started and friends were stopping by his apartment as we were packing up belongings of ultimately a stranger. Mm -hmm. And these friends were beside themselves, totally upset, totally heartbroken that he had passed away. They had lots of pleasantries to offer. And, and so then as the visitation, which we ultimately ended up deciding to do happened, the same thing was happening. People were coming through the visitation line talking about a man that I was not connecting to the one in the casket behind me. And at that visitation, I said to one of his friends, you know, we're going to need, we're going to need six pallbearers tomorrow. 
And this guy, like rapid fire, had six names. I think, in fact, he had eight names. It was just like rapid fire. Yeah. And I thought, whoa, where did that come from and who are all these people? And I realized through the course of the evening and through the funeral the next day that, you know, he had a lot of friends and those friends really valued who he was in their life. And so, of course, that, you know, we, he is cremated and then buried and flash forward and I'm having these, you know, these moments of grief about a man that I didn't know. And now I wished maybe we had somehow met on some plane that was mutually, you know, agreeable an existence that we could sort of cohabitate in some way together. And I had this moment where I realized that he wasn't much of a father, but he was clearly, you know, a hell of a friend. And so having a funeral for Bob, the father may not have been worth having, but having a funeral for Bob, the friend was definitely something that people in his life needed. And so it, the perspective that I have on him now is that, you know, there's a magical time in parents' lives. And I know you're 27, you said? Yeah, 27. You know, 27. And I'm 39 this year. And I'm definitely at that stride where children and their parents become like friends. And, you know, they'll still be parents, but there's just a, there's just a relationship. It's almost like a new relationship evolves. And I have that with my parents now. And so part of me wonders if those mutual planes that he and I could have met on, planes like friendship, spirituality, um, art, you know, he was an incredible artist. If all of these things we couldn't have met on as friends eventually, mm-hmm. you know, but sadly time didn't give us that. And the reality is he's gone. And I could choose to be better now about the relationship that I could have had with him. And in many ways, the relationship I think that I might have deserved. But sitting in that space of resentment doesn't serve me now. It doesn't serve him. He's not here. And so I choose to reframe that, to understand that he was powerful in this world as a friend. And, yeah. and, and that, you know, that the truth is his everyday legacy was being lived. I just didn't get to experience it through mm. the relationship that we had. And I guess we just we just feel like as default because someone is our biological parent that we must be entitled. Not I don't want to use the word entitled. We must be receiving that 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 relationship. And I think that's what kind of that hurts us if we don't get that. Um how long did it take you to get over that? To get over the death of your father? I, I don't think we ever get over the loss of someone. I think we manage in new normals. I think that's the biggest, biggest takeaway for me and all of the, the experience that I've personally had with grief and seen other people go through is that, you know, oftentimes we lose people in our life that mean a great deal to us. And so there's this giant void, but losing people who may be in the present when they're alive, don't mean as much to us, leave a significant void for what could have been. And so, you know, that adjustment uh, to a new normal is just something that, you know, continues every single day. You know, my grandmother, his mother, years later passed away. There's not a day I don't think about her. Um, in fact, there's many days I even think about him. You know, I, I, I laugh at some of the things that maybe we could have shared and enjoyed. Um, and um, so it's just a new normal. That's all it is. One thing I really like about you, Cody, is your is your perspectives. And that's why this was such a good fit to have you here because 
we both um, it's kind of the, the, kind of the name of the podcast, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I love I love how you talk about it so much. But yeah, it's, it's your 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 perspective around death altogether is just so intriguing. And you've been around death your entire life. Has this not affected your mental health? Like, how do you not take this stuff home? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has affected my mental health in the very best of ways. I mean, most funeral directors who you meet are the most incredible people in the world. These are heart-centered people who choose to do work that most people would run away from. It's, you know, I equate you know, being a funeral director, similar to being a firefighter. So, you know, a firefighter runs into a burning building when everyone else wants to run out. A funeral director sits down to have conversations and manage a situation when everyone else wants to usually abandon it. These people lead with their hearts. They're just the most incredible humans in the world. No funeral director have I ever met isn't in it for the right reasons. And if they are, they don't last because the funeral service, if you ask most funeral directors at some point, it feels almost like a calling. Most of them can't articulate how or why they got into the business. And if they have a narrative around that, it's usually shifted in some way. And it's usually led by their experience with families. And so does it affect the, you know, the mental health? <laughs> yes. It, there's no question that, you know, when you're surrounded by death, it can, you know, it can be heavy at times especially when we're talking about the loss of children or sudden loss, you know, th those are tragic moments that will stay with, you know, funeral directors forever. But the power here is, is transforming the narrative that most of us think around death and look at it the way I do, which is, you know, there's a saying I, I like to have, and it usually catches people off guard a little bit, but it's, it's this sentence, everything I have learned, I have learned from dying. And the truth is that when I think about, as I said earlier off the top of the podcast, most of the lessons I've learned come from that world. It's, it is what gives me the ability to have what I consider such valuable perspective on life. Now, I don't walk around, you know, with a, you know, <laughs> with a, you know, rainbow confetti gun, you know, trying to make light of, you know, crappy situations that, that that's again, that's the rainbows and unicorns world that just does, it just doesn't exist for most people. But I always try and scratch past the surface just a little bit to understand that there's value in everything, even sometimes in the worst of situations. And it all, is, it all boils down to a matter of how we choose to see it or choose to feel about it. And sometimes those moments don't happen at the time that those things are happening. Right. Sometimes they happen years later where you look back and you think, like my father, what a powerful influence he had on my life. And, you know, for instance, the, the great lessons from him were that if I were to become a father, I certainly have a great roadmap for how to show up because right. the man I had didn't show up. Mm. And so um, now at the time, that's a hard lesson to take away because you're just jaded by the fact that the person who should be showing up that way isn't. So it's sometimes harder to see in the moment, but there are always lessons, always seems like you're not scared to talk about death. I mean, you're definitely not scared to talk about death. Um, have you, do people often get weirded out in social settings that, I'm, I mean, I'm, I know you don't show up to parties saying like, hey, you know who died today? I know you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't do that. Definitely not. <laughs> but 
Do people get weirded out still when you talk about this in social settings, when you talk about death? I don't really talk about it that much, to be honest. You know, I, like I said earlier, in, in North America in particular, we're fairly death averse. Most people don't want to talk about death. They definitely won't want to talk about their own mortality, um, let alone their, you know, the legacy they will leave, which is part of why I framed this book as everyday legacy. People understand, you know, the, the subtitle is Lessons for Living with Purpose right now and understanding that we can shift how we're showing up in the world and how, how we are engaging with those around us in a, it literally in a split second in the snap of a finger. And so I, you know, even though my world was in funeral service, you know, I, I don't walk around thinking about death all the time or talking about it all the time, but there's no question that naturally people have a lot of questions about death. They usually want to know the indie, you know, the nitty gritty details, which are not details I would ever share, to be honest. They're, they're not conversations that really matter. What matters is the powerful stories that I heard and the lessons that I saw lived and the incredible relationships I saw, you know, in, um, in the world. Those are the things that, you know, I would, you know, find myself talking about at the end of the day, you know, having moments of reflection for like the gentleman I spoke about earlier, whose eulogy I heard and just thought, what a powerful man, what a powerful presence in, in, in these people's lives. That's someone who I wish I might have known. But it's in that very moment that when I say things like, I wish I might have known that I can actually distill the qualities that I heard and understand that I have those relationships in my life. And so the, the, the long answer to your short question, and the, and there's a reason I'm answering it this way, is because it it, it again it lends itself to perspective. I I could choose just to talk about all the nitty gritty logistical details of funeral service, and there's lots of you know there's lots of interesting stories from that perspective. But for me, it wasn't what draw it was it wasn't the draw for me to the business. It was it wasn't what pulled me in in the beginning. What pulled me in was human connection and my interest in um, you know in how people engage and who they are that cast of characters in the sticker book. And so one of the best stories I can, that I can offer to illustrate this is my sister a year and a half ago had her very first child, little baby boy. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. He's, he's a little beautiful little human. And I saw her several times through the pregnancy and you know, one month in she looked great. No baby bump. Three months in, she's got a little bump and how you feeling? I'm, I'm great. She would say five months in, wow, you're getting bigger. How you feeling? She'd say, I'm great. I, you know, things are really, really good. And she'd have a smile. In fact, by the six and seven month mark, it was like she was glowing. It was just this crazy, beautiful experience. And she felt wonderful. And around the eight month mark, I happened to see her again. And I said, uh, wow, you are big. <laughs> you have really exploded. Um, that baby's coming. How you feeling? And she turned to me with these almost demonic eyes and said, like, get him out of me. <laughs> she was just ready to give birth. And so I said to her, you know, um, funny enough, I'm having a similar experience with this book. I'm ready to just get it in the world. I, I, I don't want, I don't want to be writing anymore. I want it just to be in the world. And I, I know I'm just getting started with editing and I've probably got a long while to go, but I said, you know, let's talk for a sec while we're on the topic of the book. Let's, let's talk about the qualities that you want to be remembered for. Like if I said to you, Sierra, What's one thing you'd like to be remembered for? And she immediately said, with the baby in her belly, I want to be remembered for being a good mother. And I looked at her and I smiled and I said, well, that's nice, but that's a crap answer. That's <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, it's nice that you want to be remembered for being a good mother, but what, what are the ingredients that bake that cake? Yeah. So 
what are the things that you have to do in order to be a good mother? And she said, fair. And she said, well, I need to be patient. I need to live with empathy. I have to have compassion and understanding. And she went on and added a few more things to the list. And I said, okay, so those are the things, just so you know, that I value in you as a, as a brother. And those are the things that make you a great daughter and a great nurse and a great friend. And so when we realize that those ingredients that we think bake one thing actually are the ingredients to so many other recipes or relationships in our life, those are the things that when we realize, when they start to repeat, when those are patterned around those characteristics, those are the things that are likely part of our everyday legacy, those things that we want to show up. And so those are the perspectives that I draw in my experience as a funeral director, which make me think of it more as a career in life and not a career in death. So how do you think that we can find peace in knowing that we're just figuring it all out? We're in the process, we're figuring it out, and we just have to be patient. Where do we find that peace? Oh, I think figuring it out is one step into the journey. Mm. And one step into the journey is better than no steps into the journey. Nice. I like so that answer. if you're thinking, you know, I can't figure this out, you're, that's actually the first step because you're consciously aware of the fact that you're trying to trying to make clear of muddy water. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to feel that way. I mean- there's days, you know, I wrote a book about living purposefully. I don't always think I have my purpose figured out. You know, I think I've got it pretty clear. And then all of a sudden some obstacle or roadblock comes up and I think, am I on the right track? Yeah. I can relate to Um, that. You know, I just wrote this book, talk about imposter syndrome. Who am I? When people are writing, oh, this is amazing. You're amazing. You've got this all figured out. And I'm thinking, I do not have any of this figured out. I was just able to articulate in a book, um, in a way that resonates with you, probably because we're on a similar path. And the fact that we're on the path that's, that's the beautiful spot. So I could tell you a little bit of like where I'm at right now in my life. Like right now where I'm at in my life, I mean, I've been putting all of my energy into my career and it's been working. I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with where I'm right, where I am right now in my career with what's going on. But to be honest, I don't know when to pause sometimes. Um, and then when I think about pausing, I get this fear that if I pause, I'll lose some momentum and then everything's going to fall apart. And I have this feeling that I might not get this opportunity in my career that um, I might I might not get this opportunity in my career later. And now is the time to capitalize and I have to always capitalize and always be on the go, go, go mindset. How do we keep, well, for myself as well, but how do we keep that large momentum going and continue progressing without really losing any momentum in the process but also without exhausting ourselves. I think first you have to recognize that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And even when it feels awkward and it's challenging, sometimes debilitating perhaps, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And you're supposed to experience the things that you're experiencing, even if they're not so wonderful, because they build resiliency for when you encounter a similar situation or perhaps the same situation in the future. So one of the things that I write about in one of the last chapters of the book is this theory of being lazy. And, you know, for me, I I had this corporate job. I worked for 15 years for a, you know, a corporate group in funeral service. And I had a, it was a great position. It was actually a wonderful job with wonderful people, but my passion and my purpose were just not being served. And 
not not to the extent that I knew they could. And I always had this itching inkling as to be an entrepreneur and to you know make speaking a full time career and 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 have writing be a part of it. Although I didn't realize it would happen when it happened. And so I left this job, and the very first day, of course, I had no salary, I had no bonus, I had no car, I had no gas card, I had technically all the vacation in the world I might have wanted, but here I found myself also not getting any emails, no text messages, nothing, and I felt really lazy. Now, rewind to the conversation we had about being a kid, talks too much in class, too distracted, you know, that was the same time that being lazy was something I realized was not a good thing. And then, of course, that progresses. You know, in school, if you're lazy, you don't get good grades. In university, if you're lazy, you probably don't succeed. In relationships, if you're lazy, they're usually not very good relationships. You know, and then you go into your career, and if you're lazy in your career, it's usually not a successful career. And so all of these things had been programmed into me that by the time I arrived at this moment of entrepreneurship with no emails and very few phone calls and no text messages, and I felt super lazy. And I started to create this construct around what have I done? And what is this going to turn into? But of course, there was nothing to do. And so inevitably, things started to happen. You know, the phone started to ring, emails started to come in, people were inquisitive about what I was doing. And I realized that my creative juices started to flow and I was able to create a lot of really beautiful things in my business and and really deepen a lot of relationships with clients that were, you know, using my my services. And so here was a space of what had the connotation of being a bad thing that actually manifested these incredible, incredible things in my life. And so for people who feel like they are constantly going and aren't able to find that time for pause, I'm here to tell you it's essential. You, you have to find moments to just pause, to feel that breath of laziness or whatever you want to call it. A break, you might want to call it a, you know, a pause like I do lazy, whatever you want to call it, whatever that framework is for you that gives you the time to check in with you and yourself above all else is critical. And when you were younger and you were actually on, you were living that go, go, go lifestyle where you weren't pausing and you weren't giving yourself that time. Um, what did you, what do you wish you did differently? Like, well, no, well, of, of course, other than pausing, um, what did you, what, what do you wish you did differently? And did that lifestyle really affect your personal relationships? Oh, yeah, without, without question. I mean, if there's, you know, I, I was going in that world so quickly that I like to say, you know, the periphery was blurry. And unfortunately, what was in the periphery was incredible experiences, incredible people, relationships. Life was actually in the periphery. I just had this focused goal to constantly do more, achieve more, succeed more, make more. It was always this more mentality. And that more mentality, that hustle, if you will, um, was actually debilitating um, and yet not, not immobilizing. <laughs> so here I was able to continue to go, you know, at tremendous speeds with the blurry periphery. And yet I was basically disabling who I was in the process. Wow. I, I mean, I, I was essentially had managed a way to put process over people my entire career. So if it wasn't important to my career, it wasn't important to me. 
And that caused a lot of relationships to suffer. None other, none more than rather the one with myself. And so what would I do differently? I mean, obviously, yes, I would find the time to pause. Um, and I actually think that probably is the only thing I would, I would do differently because it's in those moments that I like to say, uh, afterwards that I realized that I met myself. Right. Wow. That was amazing. I, I definitely need to need to hear that right now. Um, so there, there was a lot of parts of your book that I, that I liked, but there was one part that I made sure I, I took out and I wanted to ask you, I related to this really well. You spoke about feeling like something was stirring inside of you all this time. Um, and I've always felt like that too. I mean, I've tried many times to figure, to figure out what that is and, um, and figure out how to get it out of me. But once I started doing public speaking and podcasting, like I mentioned, these things started to feel like they were landing. What advice do you have for people who feel like they have something stirring inside them? They just need to get it out, but they don't know what that outlet is. <laughs> let it stir. Just let it keep stirring. I mean, for the longest time, I didn't understand, you know, it was like an inkling. It was like a, a shoulder tap that I talk about in the book. It was like this, this thing that kept persistently nudging me towards where I was supposed to be. And where I'm supposed to be right now is with this book and, and sharing some of the insights from it and perspectives in, in an effort or a hope to actually change other people's perspectives on things that maybe they need to shift. But just because it's where I am now does not mean it will always be where I'm meant to be. And I think having that fluid philosophy on life is, is understanding that things may change. And if they have changed because they were meant to change and not because I constructed them to. And that's part of the going back to the being lazy part is there were a lot of things in those moments of laziness or apparent laziness. I'm using air quotes right now. So laziness, they weren't, I wasn't actually being lazy. It just felt terribly lazy. It wasn't as productive as I was used to my days. I wasn't going 900 miles an hour. I was going more like nine miles an hour. So I could see everything clearly. And maybe part of it was also the vulnerability to feel and see a lot of the things that I had missed out on. There was probably that at play as well. But the truth is that, you know, at, at the time, had I tried to create things, I would have been successful. But I probably would have pushed a lot of things that naturally weren't meant to be. And so part of it is also just allowing, whether you call it God, whether you call it Buddha, Allah, the universe, a higher power, to co-create with you a little bit and to understand that, you know, it, in a non-mystical kind of way that, you know, there, there will be cues, or as I like to call them, shoulder taps. And if something is meant to be enough, those shoulder taps will become a nudge. So for me, the nudge was towards write this book, write this book, write this book. But the interesting thing is that Everyday Legacy didn't start out as Everyday Legacy. It started out three times as a business book talking about organizational culture and development of, you know, people development in, in, in organizations because that's the space from a consultancy perspective that I live and breathe. And so I tried three times and they were crap. They were just not good books, not books I would have read or loved and I never got past a chapter. And so I, the, the logical left side of my brain thought, it's because you don't know how to write a book. Well, what do we do when we don't know how to do things? We find people who do, mentors or coaches. So I hired a coach. I hired a book coach. And just another incredible human who just came into my way, a shoulder tap, if you will. 
And she said, okay, let's talk through this. And we tried to talk about the same business books and inevitably they also were not great conversations. They were just dead ends. And she said, all right, uh, uh, talk to me about something that you really believe, something that you believe with conviction. What, sum it up in a sentence for me, and then I want to talk about it. And I took a moment to think. And then I said, I believe everything we have ever been taught or thought about legacy is wrong. I believe we are programmed to believe, whether consciously or subconsciously, that legacies are something we leave. And I've seen how powerful it is when we shift that narrative and legacies we start to believe are something we can live every single day and impact those around us with purpose and on purpose. Yeah, there's nothing else more I believe in the world. And she was totally intrigued. And she said, let's talk more about that. And four hours later, we hung up the phone. And we didn't hang up before she said, I think we found the book that's inside of you. Mm. And a year later, or 52 Wednesdays, as I like to say. We, we, wrote, we, we spoke and wrote on Wednesdays. So 52 Wednesdays, it took me to write this book. And it was at the time exactly where I needed to be. And it has led me to now, which is exactly where I need to be. And so all of these things in life have a way of working out. And when you trust yourself and you trust your guidance, your, that inner guidance, that compass, it usually doesn't steer us wrong. But trusting it is... <laughs> that's a muscle you have to just build over time. And some people naturally trust it and, you know, throw caution to the wind and others, you know, are more programmed to have more caution. And perhaps you're one of those people. I, I'm one of those people. For me, information to me is like grease to a bearing. Without it, I find it very hard to move. And so there were a lot of things that, you know, writing a book, the very logical things behind it that I wanted to know. But for some reason, I was throwing caution to the wind and just letting myself be very heart-centered in this book and be vulnerable. I mean, as you read, you read the book, there's a lot of very personal stories in the book. Absolutely. Not, not just my stories, but even stories that I learned about other people. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so I just led with my heart and there's also something powerful about that living with intention, um, and, um, you know, letting something bigger than you lead the way. So you've put this book out into the universe. Like it's like, it, it's your baby. It's, it's, it's there. there. It's, it's there. there. It's physically there. What, what's headed next for everyday legacy and for you? Oh man, I'm being lazy as hell now. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because people have asked me that question and uh, my first answer is like, uh, not a damn thing. I mean, I really want to, I really want to experience what this book does in my life and what it does in other people's lives and listen to that conversation, even if it's a silent one and, and really dial into it. So, you know, here's a perfect example. I'm right back now to where I was when I became an entrepreneur and stepped out of that, you know, you know, big paycheck and company car and felt lazy. I'm right back there again. I mean, I'm not recreating my business. My consultancy lives on and will, but this is going to add a whole new element. It's going to change a lot of my speaking. It's going to change a lot of my consultative services. They'll sort of be based around, um, you know, everyday legacy as a concept and how we're showing up, whether that's in business as leaders or in the work we do as company cultures in our communities. You know, that legacy piece and making it consciously now um, is, will become a big piece of the puzzle for me. But I'm also smart enough now to have conversations with people where something has resonated in the book to dive a little deeper. So 
a lot of people are reaching out and sending photos of saying, oh, the book arrived. And, you know, I'm saying to them, great, reach out when you're done reading. I'd love to hear from you. Um, in fact, I say that right in the book, you know, at the end of the book, I say, you know, if, if this book has resonated with you, reach out to me, I'm available. Social media, that's the one thing about social media, it connects the world. And so I, I love that people can do that. So, so many people have reached out and said, I got the book. So many people have reached out and said they read the book. And my first question is always what resonated most with you? What story, right. what story did you love the most and why? And how does it apply to your life? What did it shift for you? Where were you then? Where are you now? Even if it's just a moment of inspiration, it's important to me to understand what's resonating so that I can make that, you know, make that come through in the work that I'm meant to do with this. So what's next? Who knows? I, I haven't got a clue. I mean, I, I know that, you know, there's already speaking opportunities that are coming from it, nice. you know, media, podcasts, all kinds nice, of things yeah. are coming from it. But to me, that just helps to augment the the impact. I mean, do I care about sales? Yeah, I mean, from a business perspective, of course, you know, that, that only makes sense. You know, uh, you know, that's a byproduct though for me. For me, when I look at a sales report from my publisher, every single number, every single unit sold to me is impact. That, and that's my everyday legacy. My everyday legacy is impact. I want to change people's lives by how I show up in it every single day. I don't care if that's the, the barista at the coffee shop. I don't care if it's the grocery clerk. I don't care if it's someone I meet, you know, at, at you know, City Hall. It, it doesn't matter to me where I am. It, in the back of an Uber, for goodness sakes, as long as I can change their day by how I show up, that's, that's my goal every single day. Because I really do believe in the compound effect of that ripple effect. And so if I change how I show up and that affects them in a positive way, then that changes how they show up and affects others. You know, that's just this, this depth and this breadth that we can't even begin to fathom just by maybe one interaction we had. So who knows? Don't know the answer to that question. And, and honestly, don't care at this yeah. point. I just, I just want to be that's in good. the moment and just experience uh, everything that this has to offer. No, that's amazing. And I'm excited to see, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with Everyday Legacy. I mean, I, from the first time we we met, I know that um, you know you you mentioned this concept to me, and um, I want to thank you for that because I remember being in a place where I just needed some guidance, and you you actually sat on the phone with me for like two hours, you know, giving me giving me help. Um, yeah, I remember that conversation. Yeah, it was, a, it was a good one. It was a great one. Thank you for that. And it's and you know it you didn't ask me for any money, you didn't ask me for anything. You just wanted to hear what I was up to. So and I really appreciate that. So and I think that what you, you've always kept the same energy, and I think that. The rest of the world is going to see that with this book. So we're about to wrap up, but uh, there's one last question I have for you. All right, shoot. If today was your last day, what would be your everyday legacy? <laughs> this might be an, uh, a hard question for most people to answer, but this is something I think about every single day. And I don't think about it in a downtrodden, macabre kind of like, oh, what if this is my last day? And, and that is also not, for those listening who are wondering, should I get this book? That is not the question that this book begs to be answered. What it really asks people to do is just flash forward for a brief moment of time and ask yourself, how do I want to be remembered? And that question, asking that question, articulately enables me to answer your question right now, which is, for me, it's, it is impact. It's what I just said to you. I'll tell a short story to wrap things up. Naturally, the story and teller in me thinks that's a great way for things to end. But I was in a grocery store um, as I was writing this book, and there was a patron of the store in front of me, ahead of me in line, and, and 
the interaction that they had with the the cashier was, I would maybe say less than ideal, maybe not so pleasant. And they weren't being very kind. And I say that without passing judgment because I don't know the space they were in. Who knows what was happening in their life that caused them to show up that way. But what I do know is it was affecting the cashier. And so I let the interaction continue. And when I stepped up, the cashier sheepishly sort of said, hello, sir, how are you today? And I said, wow, you handle jerks like a pro. And immediately this gaze went from looking down to up and a big smile flashed across their face. And and they said, oh yeah? And I said, if that's any example to set, wow, you are a pro, good for you. And I could just see that you know, as she started to scan through my groceries, that that had changed her state. And she was able to laugh and we, you know, sort of had a back and forth. It was just a, a moment that seemed inconsequential at the time. Right. But I knew that that engagement, that when I engaged with that person that way, the seven people that were behind me in line were going to get that version and not the one the patron in front of me had left that person in. When we want to change how we show up in the world, it doesn't need to be grand. It can be these tiny, like I said, seemingly inconsequential moments that can have a magnitude that we can't even begin to imagine. And so as listeners start to think about what is my everyday legacy, just know that it's just like a practice. You just have to start thinking about it. And then it's something that just goes on autopilot. It's something where those values start to show up more and you start to realize, wow, that one line, you know, you handle jerks like a pro. Seven words. Totally shifted that person's experience that day. And you can do it in less. You can do it in three words. You can say I love you to someone who you love. Maybe you don't say it enough. Maybe it's what they need to hear. Those three words can change someone's life. And there's one word that can change someone's life if no one has acknowledged them in a long time. And that's high. And when we start to realize the impact that we can have in seemingly meaningless ways, we start to realize that those meaningless ways put a lot of meaning into our life. And that's what causes us to be able to live with purpose, on purpose, right now, and start to really shift how we're showing up and to create an everyday legacy. Amazing. Amazing answer. So for those who are listening, how can they find, how can they, you know, keep up with you and Everyday Legacy, your book? Where can they find us online? Everyday Legacy is uh, the website, everydaylegacy.com. For those who are interested in buying the book, all of the retailers, you know, in Canada and in the U.S. are all linked directly there. Amazon, Indigo, Barnes & Noble in the U.S. And then worldwide, there's a couple of uh, distributors as well. Uh, On social, at Cody Shewan. The trick there is it's C-O-D-I, Shewan, S-H-E-W-A-N. And that's across all social platforms. And when I say to reach out and connect, I really do mean that. I want people to continue the conversation. Oftentimes, we recognize the greatness in others very silently. Um, and it's important to share with people what those things are that shift you because of how they show up in the world, because then they'll start to do those things more often. 
And, uh, and so I want to continue the conversation. I want to engage with people. So connect with me online, socially, uh, personally and professionally. And um, let's, keep, let's keep the conversation going. Beautiful. Thank you, Cody. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you have a great week. Until next time.